Welcome to the Bodacious Women in Cannabis podcast, the show where the bold and brilliant women cannabis business leaders share their journey and their expertise. Here's your host, Susan Burns. Welcome to Bodacious Women in Cannabis. I'm Susan Burns, your podcast host. As a cannabis lawyer by profession, nothing delights me more than showcasing bodacious women in cannabis. Today, I'm super excited. We're talking with Andrea Steele, and Andrea is an attorney with Frost Brown Todd, hailing from the great state of Texas. And what is really piquing my interest in talking with Andrea is she is one of the, in my opinion, one of the premier attorneys in the cannabis space and has worked on some some landmark cases. And so welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Susan. And I love this podcast and what you do with it. And I appreciate the invitation. So thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> so Andrea, you're a lawyer and you're in Texas. And mm-hmm. how did you how did you um, start being a cannabis lawyer? I know you're you're a well-known cannabis lawyer. So how did you start in the cannabis industry? Um, thank you. So I, I'll kind of work backwards. I launched my practice about five years ago, um, right when uh, the Farm Bill passed and Texas was launching its program. And I had been thinking about launching a cannabis practice for about four years prior to that. Um, what happened was when Colorado and Washington legalized, I just became very, very intrigued with this whole idea that a state could completely like violate federal law and it was it was allowed, but like it wasn't allowed, but it was allowed. So that just that just intrigued me to no end. I didn't know that that was possible, that it was something that could be done. And then more states started doing it. And then like medical was spreading and then adult use was spreading. And I just I knew that there was a big thing happening. And it was really interesting from a legal perspective, just because of the legal nuances. Um, so that that was the legal aspect of it. Um, but prior to that, in my in my former my formative years, I was an at risk youth, and I got into a lot of trouble as a teenager and suffered from a lot of um, adversities that I was able to get through. And um, so my my understanding of cannabis really is that it is medicinal and that there are beneficial uses for it for consumers and that it really can help with issues um, like PTSD and trauma, anxiety, those kinds of things. And so um, I just think that I have a personal connection with the plant. And then my legal practice just like went out the I don't know how I like I, I, as soon as I realized this could be a practice area and I could do it. And then I started looking around to see who else in Texas did it. And there's, there was hardly any at that time. It was just Lisa, just Lisa Pittman. And so, um, you know, I met with her there's a whole, it was a long drawn out process before I actually launched my practice. I spent some time studying so that I, when I announced, so to speak, that I was a cannabis lawyer, I actually had some background and knowledge and experience of what I was talking about. I didn't want to just say, oh, I do this. And I had no clue. So I spent a good amount of time studying before I even announced to anybody. And then. Unlike some some in our profession, right? uh, Yeah. Yeah. But, but but I'm going to tell a story. I want to tell a story real quick about it because this, when I, when I, I, the firm that I work with, I used to work with for 12 years where I launched the cannabis practice and I, and I, was the leader of the cannabis um, group at that firm. And there was about 20 attorneys in my group. And when I, 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 by history, my legal practice is affordable housing development. I represent developers that build multifamily housing um, using like low-income housing tax credits and other governmental subsidies. 
so I do a lot of debt and equity negotiations, whatever. But um, when I realized that this was a practice area that I could get into and I started to get into it, um, I was, uh, I think I was an associate at the time. So I don't know if I was like, yeah, I think I'm still an associate maybe. Um, maybe not. But I walked into my boss's office and I didn't ask permission. I said, I'm launching a cannabis practice and this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. And, you know, I just want to make sure that there's no issues with it. And um, I was actually prepared to kind of walk away if they were going to tell me no. And I didn't, I thought they were going to tell me no, but they came back a week later. They said, you're the head of the cannabis group now, go do what you want to do. And so um, that really just kind of unleashed me. And um, that's what I really you had that support. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And, um, but the, the whole, you know, don't ask permission thing as a woman, especially was a big, a big thing for me. It was a big thing. It is a huge thing. So what inspired you? I mean, where did you get the, the, the guts or the chutzpah to, to do that, to approach it? It took that time. Way? It took time, time and planning. So it, 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 I mean, I had a whole list of bullet points written out before I walked into his office. I had already like, I had a website already up that just wasn't linked. So I was like, can I link it to the firm website? You know, there was, I just, I had things planning out and I just knew that if I didn't take the step, you know, one step, but if you don't go, you have to, you have to take the step, whatever it is, you have to put one in front of the other and go. And I knew that if I didn't hurry up, I, I felt like I was going to miss the window of opportunity. That's clearly not the case. It's still happening. Um, and still will be for some time. But, um, at that time, I just felt like I, I couldn't waste any more time. And I, and, and Texas was about to open up its medical applications and, um, for the, for the compassionate East program. So I knew that was happening and, um, it, it was that time it was time for that. Good for you. Well, I'm happy you did it and I'm happy they supported you. Um, yeah, me too. And so, well, because it's interesting and a couple of things you said as a, you know, as a lawyer, the, to me, I've been in practice for 40 years. This is the most fascinating area of the law ever. Yeah. I mean, it and is it's really it's, complicated. It's so complicated. And as you said, the, you know, just the fact that the federal government has one set of laws and then the states can say, oh, well, here's what we're doing, you know? And they, yeah. And every state has its own package and then and, and its own patchwork and then you enter hemp into it. And so not only do we have, we ha it's so convoluted and complicated, but it's fascinating. So we have federal illegality of marijuana, you know, above 0.3% Delta 9 THC, but federal legality of hemp. And some of these products really are very similar to one another and have um, very similar, um, I don't know, effects on the, on the user to, to, to sometimes. So, um, you know, seeing that and then seeing it kind of reversed and how the medical and adult use market in marijuana, the trajectory for that, and then kind of watching it come backwards from hemp where you start with federal legalization and then you start to rein in where with marijuana, it was like, you start to loosen up. So this, this convergence of the two of them is, is fascinating. It is fascinating. It's kind of mind boggling too. So talk to us, Andrea, about what you just mentioned, and that is hemp being federally legal, marijuana being federally illegal, states expanding the legality of adult use marijuana, or as they like to call it, cannabis, which hemp mm -hmm. is cannabis, but anyway, right. um, but adult states expanding adult use, but at the same time contracting hemp, which is lower in its... THC component. So putting more restrictions on hemp, which is less. So 
psychoactive in theory. <laughs> You'd be in theory. But, you know, but, I mean, in terms of dosages that are permitted and things like that. So talk to yeah. us about that. And I also want to, I also want to hear about you in the, in Texas, in the beginning, you were involved in a case that mm-hmm. was uh, cutting edge uh, in the hemp space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just talk to us a little bit about all that. I know it's a lot to start with something and pull a thread. Let's go. I'll talk about kind of like the hemp um, evolution, so to speak, from when okay. I entered the industry. I know there was absolutely history before, before you know, 2018. But um, one of the interesting things, because I didn't come from the marijuana side when hemp was legalized, I came from like a fresh set of eyes seeing fully what the law was for hemp. So I, I actually started, I started studying cannabis but because Texas legalized hemp. I, my practice began in hemp. But again, like you said, it's all cannabis. So there's a lot of similarities. But um when when hemp came about and I was able to get into that practice, um, I I just had fresh eyes, like I said. So I'm reading the actual laws and the rules, every word of them as they're coming out. So as they're being, you know, the the, the farm bill, I read that, you know, from the beginning of the section of the hemp to the end, and then that last part at the bottom, the Controlled Substance Act, and then the rules that came out, the interim rules, the proposed rules in Texas, the final rules from the USDA, and just reading all of that. Um, and Delta 8 started to kind of increase in its um, interest, right? Consumers started to become more interested in Delta 8. And there's a lot of questions. Is this legal? Is this not legal? And this was probably in, you know, early 2020. Um, and in August, I think of 2020, the, the DEA dropped that um, interim final rule that made this mention that all synthetic THC is illegal, no matter what the percentage is, right? And so that line in there kind of quickly made a lot of people in the hemp industry believe that that was the DEA saying that hemp was illegal um, if there was like, if the Delta 8 was illegal because, you know, it, they claimed that it was synthetic or they alleged that Delta 8 was synthetic. And my view on that from the beginning was, you know, multifold. Number one, Delta 8 is not synthetic because it comes from the cannabis plant. And when you talk about synthetics, at least with how the DEA has handled synthetics in the past with opioids, they have synthetics which don't originate from a plant. They have the semi-synthetics, which originate from the plant and then are converted or somehow, you know, converted into medicine. And then the natural ones, which just are extract. Um, and so seeing that, and I also, I, I didn't mention before I became an attorney, I was a probation and parole officer in both Washington, D.C. And then when I moved to Texas down here in, in, in Harris County. And so as, you know, in the law enforcement side and in the correction side, and that's my background educationally, it was criminal justice, I I very familiar with the war on drugs and, and how the drug um, schedules have kind of come about and how things have shifted. So I remember in 2012 and that time when Spice and K2 were really popular. And so I remember when that happened and I remember when it unhappened, not unhappened, but I remember when, you know, when it became really big and then the Analog Act came and, and not the Analog Act came, but they started using the Analog Act to apply it to these um, true synthetic cannabinoids that don't originate from a plant. But so talk, this, break down the Analog Act, because I don't think a lot of people know about the Analog Act. Okay, so, and I'm just doing off the cuff because I don't have anything in front of me with like the language, but essentially the Analog Act is like any substance that is um, structurally similar or, or greater uh, is similar in structure and has similar or greater effects in like um, on the body, pharmacokinetic effects and uh, sorry, but anyway, if it's like if it's the same as a Schedule One or a Schedule Two drug, then it will be treated as a Schedule One drug. And so the Analog Act is, is 
a doozy. I mean, because it's so vague and unclear and you don't know what is substantially similar. What, it, you know, how, how do I know that? And if it looks substantially similar in the molecular structure, does that mean it's substantially similar in the pharmacokinetic effects? Like there's just a lot that goes with it. And, and, and the analog act is just a mess. I'm actually reading a really good book right now about it. And I totally recommend it for anybody that's interested in the analog act. It's called Bizarro. Let me find the guy's name because it is a fascinating book. Um, and he talks about the analog act and how the DEA applied it during the 2012 and those years of like the, the log jam um, bus when, when all of those synthetic cannabinoids started to, to really become illegal and they started coming out of the convenience stores and the smoke shops um, and people were being charged and prosecuted and convicted under them. So anyways, this book is called Bizarro and it is by B-I-Z-A-R-R-O. Yes. Jordan Rubin, Jordan Rubin, and it's Bizarro called Bizarro. Jordan Rubin. It's fascinating. So anyways, um, when, so I, I was kind of putting all of these things together, you know, Delta Ace, I don't think it is synthetic under the way that the DEA has, you know, has characterized synthetic drugs. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, reading through what the um, DEA said, they said, we're not making any changes. We are simply conforming to what the farm bill you know, basically mandated us to do. We are, we are modifying our schedules only to be basically aligned with the law because they were out of line. They were, you know, their, their, their rules didn't match the federal law. So they had to modify them to match them. And then when they did that, um, like I said, there was a whole, you know, thing in the industry, like, oh, Delta eight's illegal, Delta eight's illegal. And I, and, and I didn't think it was, I spent, I remember just diving into this and spending so much time reading and looking up cases and researching. And at the time, Lisa and I worked together and I was texting Lisa all weekend. And I was like, I don't think this is right. I think that it's legal. I think, and she was like, I was like, I want to write about it. Go ahead and do it. So I wrote an article and she edited and we you know, revised and worked on it together. And that article came out and it was, it almost went viral. It's probably one of the best. Um, I think that article got more attention on my firm's website than, than even the homepage. Like it was <laughs> wild. It got spread everywhere because it's it was, a, it was an, a, it was an attorney perspective. And most of the attorneys were being very conservative and saying, no, this is, it's not in the spirit of the law. And I'm, I'm like, the spirit of the law doesn't come into play unless the language is unclear. The language is very clear here. It is very clear. And it's so clear that it had to have been contemplated because 0.3%, they pick a number, they specify which cannabinoid, and they make it clear that all the other ones are not, you know, included in this. And I don't think it really has anything to do with, you know, spirit of the law, because Congress has had, what, five years now? They haven't changed it, you know? So, so if it was that big of a concern, then I think things would have happened. Like with the synthetic cannabinoids that would were causing people fast. to actually, right. Because yeah. those synthetic cannabinoids were causing deaths. They were causing psychosis. They were causing people to be you know, violently assaultive against other people. And, and they, those cannabinoids are not like the ones in a plant. Those cannabinoids, um, the synthetic ones, they're not, they bind like much more readily to your CB receptors where cannabis kind of like fits, you know, some different strains might hit it in different ways or whatever. But the, the synthetic cannabinoids bind a lot tighter and so their effects are much more potent much more dangerous than cannabis then if you think about the 250 page document that just came out last week from hhs about potentially rescheduling and they talk about how the harm from cannabis especially compared to other things that are legal or that are scheduled at a lower um you know scheduling the harm is not there like it is mm -hmm. with those other things and mm -hmm. so uh, and there is medicinal purposes and benefits from it and so 
you know, to hear all these things just kind of coming together, I'm, I'm jumping all over the place because I'm, there's just so much happening in the, well, in the cannabis world right now. To, it's hard to stay in one lane here because there is a lot, there's a lot that comes into, and people just go, well, is, is hemp legal or is this legal? And it's like, what? Well, right. And know. that's what a lot of my clients, the questions were, is this legal? Can I do this? How do I do this? Like, and so, you know, going through all of those things, but when that, when that rule dropped from the interim, the DEA, the interim final rule, um, I, I still continue to take the position that, that, that this was in line and compliant with the law um, as it was written. And all of a sudden, actually in, in response to that DEA rule, so I'm going to get into the Texas lawsuit now. Um, in response to that DEA interim final rule, Texas objected to making those changes in its schedule of controlled substances. And the law in Texas is that if the federal government changes its schedule, Texas will follow suit automatically within 30 days to match the federal schedule unless the state objects um, or the executive director, the health department here, objects. And, he, and is and he there did. a basis for them to be able to object, object or can they just object because it's a great cloudy day? Or I don't have, I don't have the, the statute right in front of me, so I don't remember if specifically mm-hmm. what it says, but they had reasoning. But their okay. reasoning said that um, they didn't want to. They didn't want to make the changes that the the rule said because they felt that there were other cannabinoids that um, didn't that weren't shouldn't be exempted. And and the dishes dishes the Department of State Health Services in Texas their position was that they can not change their schedules and therefore Delta Eight and any other substance above. Uh, any substance that was not Delta nine below, you know, at or below 0.3% was illegal, which kind of flipped the definition on its head because the definition of hemp under federal law is anything that's not 0.3%, you know, 0.3% Delta nine is legal over that is legal. um, As long as it's not the Delta nine, but in Texas, they kind of reversed it by a rule that they didn't tell anybody. They didn't publish it. So, Oh, no rulemaking. Right. So they rejected, they objected to the DEA's changes. So then no changes made. But then they later published a set of a schedule of controlled substances that had changes to the definitions of, of um, tetrahydrocannabinol and marijuana extract. And those changes were never published for um, comment and review, you know, notice and comment period for the public. That never happened. It just was a change to the rules. And so that was the basis of the lawsuit in Texas. And when we uh, what happened was like several months later, I think the DEA rule dropped in August and then. I want to say it was October of the following year, um, October of 2021. Is that right? It might be um, that uh, it may have been actually October of 2020 now that I think about it. But um, on the website, on the state's you know Department of Health website, they just put up this notice that all Delta 8 is illegal, no matter what, no matter how much was in it. And, and that just on its face doesn't it's not possible because hemp naturally contains there's you know it's going to naturally contain some some small amount right because Mm -hmm. from my understanding it's just like it naturally degrades into delta that's a a thing that happens naturally in the plant um so then that effectively made the way they changed the rule effectively made all hemp illegal because it's going to contain the plant is naturally going to to contain other thcs and other cannabinoids besides delta 9 so um we sued at the time. I, I, I still do have a client, hometown hero, um, and they were, you know, and are distributing um, hemp and hemp derived cannabinoids throughout the country. And so um, they wanted to sue, 
And, you know, I, I had been representing them for a couple of years at that point. And so they called me, Hey, what can I do? And we got on it. And it was, um, I, I really do believe it's a very, very strong case because it's, it's just government process. They did not follow the process. And I, I you know, so of course I'm, I'm on the case. I'm a little biased about it and I feel like it's really strong, but I, I do like I'm not on the case. And I've read this, I've read the pleadings and the opinions and I, I think you're right. I'm in your camp. <laughs> I, I, I wrote those things. Um, so, <laughs> well, good welcome. A good bulk of them. Um, but yeah, I, I, so that lawsuit really like being Texas and being such a big state, you know, in comparison, like California, like, cannabis is legal in California. Cannabis is being legalized in New York. But cannabis is nowhere close to getting adult use in Texas. We have a very, very restrictive medical program. So for us in the state of Texas, a very, very conservative state to, we got an injunction. So that lawsuit got an injunction. I, I missed that part. We got an injunction against the state of Texas. They cannot enforce that rule. And so now, you know, we, we follow the federal definition so, of how. Just so for people that aren't, that are listening, that aren't involved heavily in the legal process, <laughs> what that means is because of the legal intervention um, by Andrea's client, the, the court said to the state, you can't enforce this rule. Correct. So they, they, they couldn't do what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, and that um, the state appealed and we went on the appeal. They, I think appealed, a, I there was a lot of back and forth because as soon as they, as soon as they appeal, it automatically stays the injunction. It, 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 I don't, it's too technically complicated to kind of like talk it out on the web, on the podcast, but and there was a lot of back and forth early on, but then we secured the injunction and it was, it was in there for a while. It's still a temporary injunction, but we haven't gone to trial. And so we had an appellate hearing just a couple months ago and um, the oral arguments for the appellate hearing, we, we um, won at the appellate court and then the state again is appealed. And so they're appealing to the Supreme court and it's, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, but again, this is an issue that is not about cannabis. It's about process. And so if you don't enforce process in this instance, you know, you open up a really slippery slope for when, when do you also not have to enforce process? And what if it's a, what if it's a, a, a rule or um, something that, that, you know, I'm just going to be a generally presumption right here, but conservatives often are less um, enthusiastic about cannabis. So what if we had a rule that was really supported by conservatives and then they can't really, you know, they have to, oh, if it goes through notice and comment, you know, you want to set precedent like that. So I think that we do have a strong case, but we will see how it plays out. We will see. Yeah. But, but, but yeah. being Texas, that had a huge impact on the rest of the country because Texas is so conservative and it's such a big state. And so because it has that type of a position in the country and in the world, um, a lot of eyes are on that case. And then after that, several other cases have been challenged in other cases in most of the states. Um except until recently, but many of the states were winning. There's a couple of lawsuits they haven't won um, in various states. Um, yeah. But I, so. I would say the majority of instances, at least based on my review, the majority of instances in which state legislation is enacted to restrict hemp unconstitutionally, unreasonably, mm-hmm. I would say um, that it, the hemp industry is, is winning. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the hemp industry has been winning. And I, I and I mean, like, not just on the legal perspective, but in the market. Um, and, it, and, it, and it has upset a lot of people on the on the marijuana side of care on the marijuana side of cannabis, because, you know, if you think about it, 
on the marijuana side of cannabis, they've been spending a long time trying to get this legal through, you know, whatever means necessary and have acquiesced to very, very restrictive, unreasonable regulations and really high taxes that make it like a very, un- it's, it's really profitable, but only for some people. And for most people, it is not. For and, a big business, you have to be a bit, you have to right. have scale in, in my, what I've seen. I'm not an economist, mm-hmm. but it, it looks to me like you have to have scale. And a right. lot of marijuana businesses are failing because they don't mm-hmm. have. So the hemp side, because of the federal legality, and, and now we have these court cases and these challenges to keep it you know legal if it meets the definition. Um, there's a lot of people on the marijuana side that, you know, initially were like, uh, you know, trashing the hemp industry and now are starting to move over into it because they realize that it it allows them to get their market share back um, rather than trying to fight the market. And in the hemp space, you don't have those super high taxes. You don't have those ridiculous regulations. Now, there is some balance that needs to be struck at some point, just strictly for consumer safety. Um, but, you know, I, I just, at some point, especially with this potential rescheduling, um, I think all of these things are going to converge and we will have one cannabis industry, but how that, when that happens and how long it takes to become stabilized is going to be, you know, anybody's guess. Um, yeah. But I do see it happening at one point. Yeah. That would be nice if everybody could hold hands to some kumbaya at some point, you know? <laughs> I think it, it depends. You know, people have different reasons for being in the industry. And if you're in the industry for money, the only thing you want to do is make sure you protect that money and protect those assets and continue to grow it. And so that's what those companies are doing. And, and those companies are, are are partnering up with like anti-marijuana companies to like come against the hemp industry instead of hemp and marijuana coming together and pushing back against the, the you know, the, the ridiculous regulations. So at some point, it's all going to give the farm bill, which is supposed to be a 2023 farm bill. It's potentially 2024, maybe 2025, right? So it's it's the status quo for now. And it's, it's, again, it's another fascinating piece of cannabis history. Um, And just watching it's like, it's, it's to be a part of this as it's happening is, it's just really amazing. It's fun to be, have a front row seat. Yeah. And to be on stage. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I always, I'm, cause you can tell I get excited about this. I'm talking about it. When I talk like this to people who aren't in the cannabis industry, their eyes like glaze over and they're just like, I don't, what is she talking about? <laughs> Why is she talking about this so much? She's happy. <laughs> What's but, she on? Um, <laughs> <laughs> have you, speaking of the, and well, it also, to me, the industry is so fascinating because always a new issue pops up. Like lately it's the hemp flower issue. Have you oh, been THCA flower? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> THCA flower. What do you take on that? Mm. And where do you think that goes? I'm not going to say everything I think about it um, on this public web pass, but I, I really appreciate the creativity of the people in the hemp industry. And I value the progress that it is forcing on the cannabis industry. And so I think that all of the negatives about Delta eight and other hemp derived cannabinoids and hemp derived Delta nine, um, the, the frustration about it is often spoken in a way that's misplaced, right? It's, it's, oh, this is horrible. This is bad for you. But really it's, it, it's, it's rooted in consumer safety. And if you fix the consumer safety issues, then I think you, 
have a much better chance of camaraderie across the industry. Um, and I, I, you know, it's going to take time, but it'll get there at some point, I, I believe. Um, but yep. It's always something. And I, always I would something. think creativity oh. is the other part of, of, about this area of practice that intrigues me is the creativity of the clients. Mm-hmm. So, I love, yes. so the real resilience and creativity is amazing to me. It's just a pleasure. I, I love it too. Yeah. Uh-huh, they, I, I get called by a client and they like present a plan to me and they're like, can I do this? And I look at it and I'm like, okay, I think we can do this. Let's move something around here. Let's change something about this. But yeah, I think we can. Um, and it's, it's, it's enjoyable. Like it's a, it's a fun practice that cha- it's very challenging. Sometimes it's really exhausting, especially trying to keep up with all the laws because they are constantly changing in all of the states. It, it is, it is, it's hard to keep up with everything. Um, but it's, it's so it's so interesting. Like, yeah. I, I think it's, yeah, yeah. I, just, I have, I have some passion about it. If you can't tell. Um, <laughs> well, and, but yeah, and, that, yeah. Oh, oh, go ahead. Did you want to say something? Oh, no, I, I realized I didn't finish the THCA flower. So I just, I think it's fascinating that um, THCA flower is, is out here in the um, market uh, in states where marijuana is illegal in states where medical marijuana is illegal. And, um, that is allowing people to get access. And I think that access and that normalization, especially the cannabis and beverages um, or hemp derived cannabis beverages, which I think is really big up there in Minnesota where you are. So, or we're one of the places where you're licensed, but that's going to help normalize and reduce the stigma um, by having it out there for the mass public to be able to consume if they choose to. Um, And what we really need to push is more education um, because a lot of people don't know what they're taking, what the what's in these products, how they impact you, and and a lot, and I think the biggest issue again with like the hemp derived cannabinoids and ones that may have the ability to cause the consumer to be impaired. If the consumer doesn't know that that's going to happen, that's that's where the problem comes in. Like nobody wants to surprise got high and they don't like being high or you know impaired in some aspect or have something happening in their body that they weren't expecting, and it's even more serious when it happens with a child. Right. And so I, yes. I get the need and the desire to have a public safety regulatory scheme with respect to anything that a person consumes. Yes. Um, and we've got issues in this country with all kinds of things that we're allowed to consume that are horrible for our health, um, but are on grocery store shelves. So, um, you know, it's, it's just very interesting to, to think about how cannabis is treated and how it's viewed and how that is shifting, how it's shifted over the years, how it continues to shift. So, uh, I still yeah, answer your question. In Minnesota, yes, <laughs> yeah. But in Minnesota, the, the hemp derived uh, infused beverages became ubiquitous. I mean, they were in grocery stores everywhere. I mean, the co ops everywhere. Now it's now that the marijuana industry is mm-hmm. it's legalized, and now so now there's more restrictions on hemp, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a whole nother story. It's not the podcast about me and my views on yeah. Minnesota law, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it is ubiquitous and it, and it does normalize it. And, and right. also with that, people can become more educated because it's not mm-hmm. this hush hush thing, you know, that's right. kept behind the, in the closet, um, you know, so I think there's a lot of good happening as you've pointed out. So, I think so in too. the legal profession, there's a saying in Latin and it's res ipsa loquitur, which is this thing speaks for itself. I think listeners can 
distinguish and determine what your bodaciousness is. But what do you <laughs> what do you think about that? What is what is your most bodacious thing? The aspect about I, bodacious. I think it's a combination of my personal my personality, my personal experiences and trauma and, and history as a teenager, my criminal justice and, and law enforcement and corrections background and my legal background and my passion for the plant. When you combine all of those things together, I feel like when I'm working with my clients, I'm like, we're, we're a team and I want to see them succeed. And I want to like, I want to do whatever I can to help them reach their goals. And, um, and, and, and because I feel like that about my clients and the things that they're doing, I keep my ear to the ground. If things are happening that I think impact them, I reach out. I'm like, Hey, this is going on. I think you need to pay attention. And, and that's something I think is the extra mile what I've seen with other attorneys who just kind of wait. Um, but I, I want my clients to be prepared. So awesome. I, I try to keep in touch with them and, and, and be on their you. team. Oh. <laughs> you can find me um, on a email, a steel at fbt.com. That's a S T E E L at F as in frost, B as in Brown, T as in Todd.com. You can also uh, reach me on LinkedIn, Andrea Steele. And um, my cell phone number is 281-755. 3850. And I work with cannabis, hemp, and marijuana uh, clients all over the country. And I'm based in Houston, Texas. <laughs> there you have it. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you so much, Susan, for having me. This is great. I appreciate you. It's been a pleasure. Uh-huh.